right, welcome into this episode of Farscast. It's been a it's been a couple of weeks since we've last done a podcast. Hope you guys are doing well and staying safe. Uh, just got back from Mexico, first time traveling uh, during this pandemic, so that was an interesting experience. I'll, I'll maybe dive into that a little bit more uh, on the next podcast. Zach and DJ, uh, for those of you guys listening, you guys know who Zach and DJ are. They'll uh, they're um, common co-hosts with me, so they'll be joining me uh later this week and we will talk about that uh and all sorts of other things uh with zach and dj but i am very excited for this episode uh i i've I've known this guy on social media for quite some time we've been uh, talking about doing a podcast for a long time very excited for uh this episode uh this man is the one of the producers for dateline nbc yes the dateline nbc he's been there for 27 of the 29 years dateline has been around uh, I'm sure we can touch on so many subjects with him here on this podcast. So very excited to introduce Shane Bishop from Dateline NBC. Shane, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm good, Fars. Thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. No, man, I, I appreciate you making time. Like I said, we've been uh, talking for a while about doing something like this. You know, I know social media can, especially Twitter, can be a cesspool, but you know, sometimes you come across in all the years that I've, I've been on Twitter and doing mostly chief stuff. Uh, and I ca- came across you just from being Chiefs fans. Uh, you come across some interesting people on, on Chiefs Twitter. So there is some good that that uh, that happens on Twitter. There's a lot of good stuff that happens. I mean, you know, occasionally you have to remind yourself to step away from the keyboard and not get pulled into the, the cesspool. But, oh, yeah. um, uh, you know, I've met you. Uh, one of the funniest people I know is Bradley Dowell uh, on or D- Dadley Browl or whatever his name is on Facebook. He just, he's funnier than hell. And I, uh, you know, it, it's just a small example of, of people you'd never come across in real life, except for social media. By the way, uh, I don't know if you can angle it a little bit to your right, that uh, poster that you have, it, you, you can only see, yeah, that right there. I have the same exact one. It's basically the four different newspapers. It's to my left right here. Well, two of them are from the Kansas City Star. One is the front page of the Star, and the other is the front page of the sports section. And then they've got a couple of other headlines right there. Uh, man, I'll tell you what, uh, that moment right there when they won, and I guess the way it happened too, it was like, 50 years and that is how they did it that fourth quarter run right there uh and then you know obviously there was that excitement last year to run it back and all which didn't go as planned but uh, yeah i wasn't as upset because they won the year before i've got to say i mean you you've obviously been following the chiefs uh, longer than i've been born but (laughs) what was it like for you as a fan just to see them hoist that lombardi trophy well you know, I could die happy. I was in a hotel room in Marina Del Rey with my wife and we were just jumping around on the bed and in disbelief, like most Chiefs fans were, you know, you think that moment will never happen in your lifetime. And last year against Tampa, I didn't even fate. I mean, it didn't bother me for more than an hour. I mean, I was just like, yeah. remind yourself, you've been in how many straight Super Bowls, how many straight AFC championships? I mean, you know, I started following them when I was seven years old in 1971 because Jan Stenerud came to the small town I grew up in in Montana. And I begged my brother to take him out there to the Boy Scouts Club. And, um, uh, you know, he went to Montana State where my dad helped start the rodeo team. And he was Norwegian and my mom was all Norwegian. And from that moment on, I was just a Chiefs fan. So it was a long wait <laughs> since 71. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I, I've come across a lot of Chiefs fans uh, on social media, and I've come across some people on, on Twitter or, or in person, I should say, 
um, who listened to uh, my old podcast um, back when I did a Chiefs uh, podcast. And it is interesting just the stories people have uh, as to how they became Chiefs. I mean, if you were in Kansas City, I mean, it's just the team you grew up in. But for you, you know, living outside of the area, do you have any connection to Kansas City at all? None whatsoever. Uh, that was that was it for me. And the problem was I grew up in a small town in Montana, north of Great Falls, like near Glacier Park. So the only games we got ever were Bronco games. And so I would I would skip half of church or get out of church as fast as I could because the game started at 11. And I would, you know, just live for those two times a year. You could see the Chiefs play the Broncos because otherwise it, you just you know, in the seventies, what could you do? You just read the box score the next day or waited for that uh, three minute, the fastest three minutes in TV with uh, boomer, you know, eventually in the eighties, but you know, now it's so much fun. You can watch everything and, and never miss a minute of a chief season. Well, there are a lot of chiefs fans who don't have Sunday ticket uh, that live outside of KC, but Honestly, if you're a Chiefs fan, you're not going to miss a lot of games because they do have a lot of 325 games and some of their noon games are going to get flexed 325. So, uh, yeah. I mean, it's just crazy to see how far this um, this team has come. Uh, what is it like, by the way, living in Montana? I, I don't think I've ever met anyone from Montana before. It's, it's cold. It's cold. I left when I was eight. Uh, well, I went to college in Missoula and then I left when I was 21 or 22. But you know, it's, it's beautiful. Um, it's gotten very expensive now. Uh, there's a lot of outsiders moving in Bozeman and Missoula and some of the cooler places have become kind of hot ticket, you know, like the show Yellowstone. I've never been asked so much, uh, over the last year about Montana because everybody loves that Yellowstone show. And they're like, is it really like that? And I was like, well, the cow, no, the Cowboys aren't all that handsome and they don't just fight constantly. You know, there's a, and it takes you nine hours to get across the state, not 10 minutes like it does in the show, but uh, it's a, it was a great place to grow up. Just nothing bad to say about it, except it was too cold. Well, you are part of one of the biggest things, uh, uh, and one of the longest running TV shows out there in, in Dateline. Um, you're, you're, you, so your title is, is, is a producer. What exactly? I, I know having used to be in um, journalism and more specifically sports media, but I'm familiar with what TV producers do. But for a show like Dateline NBC, what exactly does your job consist of? Well, I mean, everything from, uh, you know, I'll read, a, I'll read a bunch of newspapers in the morning. Um, I live in Oregon and a uh, rural Oregon. So I tend to cover things in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, kind of the blue highways out here where, you know, it's not New York or LA. So they're not fighting over this. I'm not fighting over the same stories as they are. Um, so I'll find a story. I'll start making some calls. I'll, you know, I'll fly up to Coeur d'Alene and see somebody if I want to, if I got a story idea there, I'll meet some people. I kind of lay the groundwork. Um, you know, my, my focus is usually on the victim's family. I try to, you know, we're, we're very um, big advocates for validating victims and acknowledging what they've gone through and their journey. So it all starts there for me. And, and then I'll watch the story as it works, it works its way through the court system. Um, I've worked on stories as long as 12 years uh, waiting for something to get done. Um, for, Cause we don't really do stories until the case is resolved and everybody's ready to talk. So, um, you know, I'll book the people, I'll write the questions. I usually work with Keith Morrison or Josh Mankiewicz. Um, you know, uh, I, I direct all the shooting, hire the photographers, 
um, get the transcript that sometimes, you know, is this thick of interviews after it's over. I write the first draft, um, supervise all the editing, you know, uh, sometimes it's blame me for whatever goes wrong, which is fine too. But, uh, you know, you try, you try to minimize the, the mistakes and, and do your best and just tell an honest story. And um, it, it's just a great job. I, I mean, it's too much. It's not real work. I mean, I know what real work could be. <laughs> My cousins yeah. on the farm do it. Yeah, that's not what I do. But how did you get to Dateline? What were you doing before Dateline? Were you in media doing any producing for TV stations? I, what, what did you do before Dateline and how did you get there? So when I was a junior in college, I got a job as an intern in Missoula, Montana with a TV station. And, you know, there within about six weeks, you're anchoring and running, running everything. And I looked like I was about 12. But I did that. And uh, then I got a job in Altoona, Pennsylvania as a reporter, just sent out a bunch of tapes, uh, spent a year and a half there and realized I still looked like, like I was 12 and uh, threw a Hail Mary and asked a, asked a news director in Harrisburg, PA, if I could be a producer. And she said, well, I'll probably regret this because I've never seen anybody trying to get off the air before. But she gave me the job. We won a local Emmy. And in nine months, I was in Philadelphia. So I worked as a writer and producer in Philadelphia for a year. Then I got transferred up to WCBS in New York, uh, where I was a writer and producer. I was about 26 then. And I got a, a desk next to Brian Williams, Josh Mankiewicz, yeah. Mike Taibbi, and this absolute murderer's row of producers who are all over, you know, 48 hours, 2020 and Dateline now. Um, mm -hmm. and just, I kind of was in the right spot at the right time. And uh, once Brian got over to NBC, he got me some interviews and I got a job at Dateline. And um, I was an associate producer, which is kind of lower on the totem pole. But uh, I had the luck of about six weeks after I got there, the writer quit to go to another show. And the boss called me in and said, are you a good writer? And I said, of course, I'm a, I'm a great writer. So I met Jane Pauley and Stone Phillips and kind of wrote most of the stuff that came out of their mouth for three years. And uh, then I just asked if I could get out in the field uh, and I've been out in the field for 24 years. Uh, so it's, it's been a lot of fun. That's awesome. That's really, and, and look, I mean, your, your story uh, I, I've heard a lot of these similar stories. I still think they're very intriguing and maybe it's because I was in the journalism industry for, for a little bit, but uh, just the stories you hear, how people, get across, who they come across, those kinds of things. Uh, I mean, that stuff is very important. Uh, what advice would you give to someone that wants to, uh, you know, become a reporter or a producer at the big stage? Maybe they want to work for a, a big network like CBS News or, or a Dateline, for instance. Um, what's your advice on trying to build that path to get there? Learn how to write. <laughs> if you can write, you can do anything. Um, You know, that was always it's if I have any skill, it's writing. And, and that's my primary skill. Uh, at Dateline, you tend to move up if you can write, you know, because we're putting together two hour shows and the scripts are 70 pages long. So, um, you know, I think in local news or um, or wherever you are, if you can write, I think you can do any job. And I wasn't good on TV. Like I I hated watching myself uh, again. I looked too young. Uh, it just wasn't my thing. But once I went behind the camera and kind of like, I love making lists and <laughs> figuring things out, how they fit together. And so I love producing shows. And then, you know, once I got to Dateline and I was writing their opens at Dateline and the teases and the stuff, the anchors were saying, I just, 
I just loved it. And I only, I only got those jobs because I could write. I only moved up as fast as I did because I could write. Because I'm not even sure I could get hired at Dateline <laughs> today. You know, the, the, everybody seems to have a, uh, a master's from Columbia or something like that. And, you know, I barely made it through the University of Montana. So, um, you, you know, it's a different world. No, it's definitely a very, uh, very uh, tough uh, industry to, to get into and try to build your way around. Let me ask this, because you've been with uh, Dateline almost since the beginning. Uh, looking back to when you started to today, uh, how do you feel like the show has changed over the years? Well, you know, when I started in 94, it wasn't all murder. Um, it was a typical magazine show. So, um, you know, I, I've I've been involved with covering every, you know, Oklahoma City bombing, Columbine. I was in New York on 9-11, um, Hurricane Katrina, more mass shootings and theater shootings and school shootings and hurricanes and tornadoes than I can count. You know, and we all we were always just the ones that that went to do that. Um, we don't do that so much anymore. Um, and I think, you know, after the um, the predator stuff, the catch a predator stuff with Chris Hansen in 2007, 2008, 2009, uh, Dateline took a more it took a turn toward true crime. And uh, like we call ourselves the true crime original now because it seems like everybody's doing it. But we've been doing yeah. it for for 15 years. Uh, so, you know, I think a lot of us initially thought murder. We're going to do murder full time. But but now we we see the value in it. Um, obviously, people are are watching it. Um, we have a lot of imitators. Uh, I, th I still think we tell stories better than anybody. And um, that's always been at the heart of Dateline as, as long as I've been there is we know how to tell stories better than anybody. Well, you guys are once a week on Friday nights. How long does it take the stories that we see on TV? How long does it take to put one of those stories together? I put I, we've put together uh, two hour shows in one day. And like I said, I've worked 12 years on it. So the typical one, just the way the justice system works, it usually takes a year or two, um, you know, at least six months for wow. unless somebody takes a plea bargain or something like that. And I usually have uh, like right now, I have between five and 10 stories going on at once and they're all in different phases. Some I'm, I'm shooting, some I'm editing, um, you know, some I'm just kind of waiting on yeah. so um it, it really varies out of curiosity what do you edit on uh well that's not really my department and they um we have the best editors on earth uh, and they all work out of their homes now because of covid um okay, yeah. our our brilliant uh, editing supervisors have figured out a way to move all the editing out of 30 rock and into um into their homes and and they're not going back so um it's they're avids. I don't really know all the details. Okay, of, I've heard about I'm not, it. I, I'm not much of a technical guy to tell you the truth. I just it's all magic to me. I write it and somehow it shows up on TV. You know? <laughs> no, that's understandable. I, I've, I've used Final Cut. Um, avid. I was going to use Avid in high school, but then they changed back to Final Cut. So I never had that opportunity. Uh, what I've heard is um, the, the place I entered that it was uh, I can't remember the name of the program, but at the end of the day, I mean, they're all really the same. Uh, you know, the shortcuts on the keyboards, uh, they're all the same for most of them. So you just kind of pick it up real quickly, no matter which one you use, if you've used a different one before. Um, I did want to ask you about the pandemic, because on this podcast, I've had a lot of people from different industries. And it feels like every person who I've had on, on this podcast so far, because uh, I started this, what, last 
July or August. I've talked about, you know, how has the pandemic impacted you and your industry? Um, because I remember, uh, and I don't watch a lot of these shows because I'm either getting ready f- to leave the door for work or, or I'm already at work, but shows like Good Morning America, um, uh, uh, gosh, what other ones do they have in the morning? Um, Today Show. The Today Show, yeah, that's right. Uh, a few others. Um, they were airing reruns. Uh, what did you guys do at the beginning of the pandemic? Were you guys able to still work? Did you guys have to air reruns? Uh, so we had a stockpile, a small stockpile of shows. Um, I, last time I, you know, it all ended in March of 2020. Like I remember being out on a shoot in Arizona and the NBA shut down and we were like, what? This yeah. must be big. So we all flew home and, um, you know, we ran some reruns. We kind of retooled and regrouped, but right. Fairly quickly, we realized that we could um, we could do interviews with our correspondents uh, remotely through Zoom, and we're still doing that. I mean, uh, I work with Keith. Uh, he's Keith Morrison's been in a, a, a theater, the Laguna Playhouse, or something like that, uh, and they just roll out different backgrounds. And you know, I go to Coeur d'Alene or Montana or wherever I'm shooting, and we do we do it via Zoom. Um, and, and I don't know when that's going to change back or if it's going to change back. Um, but we, we've been able to respond, you know, kind of seamlessly. We, I mean, the producers like me really never stopped traveling. Um, even though I just got fully vaccinated, you know, like two or three weeks ago, but we were just careful and, you know, it's, it's our job. So we just went out and we just went out and did it. I know when you and I were chatting a couple of weeks ago, uh, or towards the end of last month, uh, you were telling me you were in Minneapolis for the, um, for the, uh, uh, verdict of uh, Derek Chavon in the George Floyd incident. And I think during, while all, all of that was going on, I think another uh, police brutality incident took place there. What was that experience like covering, uh, covering that story? Because this is a, because I, I mean, th- this whole story of, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and police brutality, it's certainly been a big deal in the, in the last 10 months or 12 months rather. Um, what were your thoughts on on all of that? What you witnessed? Well, I'm you know I'm just a reporter, uh, but and I had a very limited role there. I was sent there. Uh, NBC had so many people, like we almost had a hotel to ourselves. I mean, between all the NBC programs, uh, I was sent there because we were planning to do a Dateline special on on the verdict, and I was sent to field produce the uh, interview with George Floyd's family. So that was my only role there. Um, and I did that. Uh, the cool thing that happened is right as we sat down with them the day before the verdict, uh, the phone rang and, you know, me being the producer, I was like, we have a limited amount of time. Let's get going on this. Why aren't we rolling? Well, it was the White House. <laughs> so uh, we all we all sat there and, you know, enjoyed just listening to President Biden talking to George Floyd's family, which was a pretty extraordinary moment. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then, that. you know, and then we we got our interview anyway, after about 15 or 20 minutes of that. But you know, it's, I was, we're we're kind of highly specialized. Like, you know, there were people who were out on the street covering things. There were more camera crews than I've seen in a long time, um, ready for anything, you know, and you're walking down the street and there's uh, little kids walking by um, national guard troops. It kind of, it's kind of one of those, am I still in America moments, but I was glad that nothing happened. And I kind of, you know, I did my job and stayed there for three or four days and came home. I, that, that was my role uh, this time in that. And, you know, that changes every time. 
you know, in this case, you know, talking to, uh, you mentioned earlier, talking to um, the victims' families, I was going through uh, NBC Dateline's YouTube page, and I did come across a video that you were a part of where you mentioned how um, after about several attempts, you were able to get um, uh, a family to uh, to do an interview with you on camera. And I remember I was in high school senior year for uh, for a broadcasting class, and I can't remember who it was. I wish I remembered her name, but um, she came in and talked about doing stories like that, talking to family members. And I remember an, a classmate asked, is it easy to get them to talk? And she said, even though they're hesitant, you'd be surprised how much, how often, you know, a lot of family members are willing to talk and do a story, uh, even though it seems like it's a very difficult thing to ask them to do. When you are approaching a family to talk about the death of a loved one or, or whatever bad situation went down, because they don't know you and you don't know them, how do you approach them? Well, I mean, you know as well as I do that if you can't connect with people and get them to talk to you like this, yeah. um, it's over as a journalist, right? So your primary skill has to be connecting with people. Um, and I've often said the, the bad part of my job is I'm just here to ask you about the worst moment of your life uh, in a public, you know, <laughs> and to talk about it in public. Um, I've, I've become a big um, believer over the years of doing this uh, that, that talking is very healing. And to um, go through these horrendous things that the families go through, just unimaginable things, you know, they're left with no chance to say goodbye. No, you know, some, some bodies are never found. Uh, I just, you know, you have to have a lot of empathy, but you also, I'm able to say to people, you know, seriously, that it does help to talk. We will acknowledge you. We will validate your pain. We will listen to you and you can say whatever you want to us. And we'll ask you some questions, but we're really here to be your, you know, to give you a platform. And I think that's worked remarkably well over the years. And also anymore with Dateline, by the time I show up, half my work is done for me because you say Dateline and, you know, they know what we do and they know how we do it. Um, I often say that if the more you want to be on TV, the less I want to put you there. Uh, and and that's that's true too, in the sense that if if I get a feeling that you're going to, you know, you want to, you, you want to, you're too interested in being on TV. Um, I'm less likely to put you there. Um, motives are pure and you want to talk to us to remember your loved one and, and all that. That's really what I'm after. And, and I don't like to, you know, I, I think I've, you can always find someone to talk. Um, but if the victim is here, I don't want to go out here to talk to somebody. I want to talk to your mom or your dad or your brother or your husband or wife or, you know, some, I want somebody right here. And that's what I'll always aim for. And, and, you know, um, it, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do to approach people yeah. like that. I usually send them a letter and kind of let it sink in a little bit. And then I follow up with a visit or a phone call. I don't like to just call people and say, Hey, I'm from Dateline. Can I come, you know, I think a letter usually works for me a little bit better, but you have to, you know, if you, if you don't ask, you're, <laughs> you're never going to get anybody. So you have to, you have to do it. It's just what the job is. Uh, you and I, we were chatting before we um, went live and started recording uh, because I, I've told, you know, some people, Hey, uh, uh, Shane Bishop, the producer for Dateline NBC is coming on my podcast. And every person who I've told, they're like Dateline NBC as in to catch a predator. Like that is, 
a pretty big part of Dateline. Like that's one, that's gotta be the biggest project you guys have ever done. And I know you mentioned, uh, and I know a lot of people listening to this probably want to hear a lot about that, but you didn't have any involvement with that. So I can't ask too many questions uh, with something that you weren't really a part of, but you did tell me that you spent a lot of time working with Chris Hansen. What was it like uh, working with him and also seeing him in that role when he did to catch a predator? Chris is one of the best pure reporters I've ever seen. He's absolutely fearless. I mean, just fearless. Um, and, you know, everybody brings different things to the table. Some of our correspondents were better writers. Some of them were better reporters. Some of them are great interviewers. Um, some of them have the whole package. You know, um, the, the nice thing about working at Dateline is my experience is nobody has an ego. All we care, we don't really care about who gets the credit as long as we make it better. Like you can change anything I write if it's better. If it's not, I'll argue with you. But, um, you know, Hanson was just, you can't teach people to be fearless like that as reporters. Um, he and I, he and I once had this great, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. We were working together a lot and we went to Michigan and I, I was working on a, a story and I went to this prison and and met a guy and on my way out this guy told me that he helped get rid of Jimmy Hoffa's body I was like Ugh, I, oh yeah okay all right buddy so anyway here's my card so he, he wrote to me and I wrote him back and I said give me one reason to believe you he goes okay uh, if you go look under my house in Bay City Michigan there's a body I put there in 1974 like, all right, well, that's fairly easy to check out. So I, I don't know how it happened. I talked to the cops or I talked to somebody. And uh, two weeks later, I was in Alaska on a story and the phone rang in the middle of the night and said, Mr. Bishop. Yeah, well, we just dug up a body. You just solved Bay City's longest unsolved murder or something. Wow. And I was like, Whoa. So anyway, now the guy had some credibility with me. So Hanson, of course, was from D the Detroit area. And he knows the prosecutor uh, in the Jimmy Hoffa case. So he calls him, tells him we got this information. Next thing you know, we're in the guy's office. We tell him a couple things that the, the convict told us. And all of a sudden he's like, hey, you better get in here. And there's two or three other people in there and all these cops. Well, he, he told us it was under, a, he told me that he had buried some evidence in his backyard, the same yard that that body was found in uh, oh, under the wow. house. So next thing I know, we're all on helicopters <laughs> flying up to Bay City. You know, I, I, like Chris and I were joking, like, you know, you know, what are you going to say on the Today Show tomorrow after we solve the <laughs> most famous anyway? You know, uh, but of course, it wasn't there. Uh, they oh. dug up a swimming pool, um, you know, and anyway, Hanson and I were kind of, you know, a little bit pissed off and disappointed. And I was sitting on the curb outside the house in this young lady, well, this lady was probably 30, came up to me and said, are you Mr. Bishop? And I said, yeah. And she goes, I know you didn't find anything about Hoffa, but that was my dad that we dug up, that was dug up under that house. And I just wanted to thank you for, from my family uh, for wow. doing it. So, you know, Hanson and I felt pretty good about that. And he's just a great guy. I just, I love him to death. I, I miss working with him. I will say, uh, uh, personally, um, and, you know, you mentioned uh, that came out around 2007 or 2006, somewhere around that time. And uh, I, I had just started high school, I think, in 2005. And look, my parents knew I was on AOL Instant Messenger and uh, mm -hmm. 
you know, you, you go on message boards, you talk about sports, whatever. I mean, it, it's common for people, uh, for, for younger people to, to be involved with those kinds of things online. But uh, when that show came out, I mean, I, I, I just looking back, definitely have an appreciation for what NBC Dateline was trying to portray with, with uh, To Catch a Predator. I think, and I know Chris went on to a different network and he kind of revived, did like a, I don't want to call it a spinoff, but he tried to do another version of that. He's and still think, doing them on YouTube, I think. Oh, is he? Okay. I didn't realize yeah. that. Because yeah. um, it's called Hanson versus Predator. Um, yeah. And I, you know, from watching that, you see some of the people who make excuses about what they were really going to do and all these things. But there are also some guys who are like, what's wrong with this? Like, these are real people you guys come across. Um you know, and again, I know you didn't have any involvement with that as a producer, but when you watch that unfold, were you ever just like, wow, these are real people that are saying these things? Well, I mean, look, there's some very broken people in the world. I mean, that's just a fact. And I, I think I was as stunned as anybody else watching that when, you know, guys would show up two or three times, you know, but that just speaks to the brokenness, uh, you know, and, I, you know, I my wife's in training to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner and she works in, you know, she works with mentally ill people. And I try to have a lot of compassion for people because usually, you know, you ask like, you know, it's sort of a, a cliche, but like what happened to you to make you this way? And there's a lot of trauma and things that people go through that shapes, shapes them and turns them into these <laughs> horrible, you know, versions of themselves. And they, and they do horrible things. And it's impossible for any of us to understand. Uh, one homicide detective a long time ago in LA told me, you know, motive only has to make sense to one person for one second. And that's really helped me a lot because the truth is, you know, you can ask why all day and, you know, you're, you're never going to get the answers uh, with, with most of the people we deal with. I always chuckled when they saw Chris walk in the door and they're like, are you her dad? It's like every single person thought Chris was the father of the, of the girl. You look familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I well, wonder why. Well, that's, that's the other crazy thing is a lot of the, they reveal the chat logs uh on on the screen and some of these people say hey there's a tv show about this you're not one of those people it's like they know they know this yeah. exists yeah yeah and yet they find themselves with you know a six-pack of zima and a bunch of you know oh man <laughs> sexual <laughs> things you know and they're like oh no i'm not here for that but no. yeah it's, it's it's a pretty interesting character study into human beings isn't it like you can be caught red-handed in the most red-handed way and you know in your heart what you're doing is wrong and you're taking alcohol and all this stuff to go meet a 12 year old and you're still like some some 90 percent of them are still going no 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 that's not me that's <laughs> you know it's fascinating isn't it i don't know if you can comment on this but from my understanding if anyone's ever seen the first season of to catch a predator from my under from what i've read online I think Dateline tried to uh, team up with law enforcement, but they thought that this was not going to work. And then once they, so pretty much whenever these sexual predators came in, you had to let them go because Dateline's not law enforcement. And once law enforcement saw that on TV, they're like, wow, we actually have to get involved this time. Is there any accuracy to that? I don't really know. I wasn't privy to, to okay. all that stuff. I do know that there's a fine line between, you know, journalists, you know, we're not supposed to work with cops. I mean, we're not we're not cops. We're not supposed to, you know, we're reporters. So I, I do know that when those guys left the house, there were cops jumping out of the bushes, um, but the yeah. cops weren't in the house, you know. So I don't I don't know that it, it 
it's kind of also been so long now. <laughs> yeah, uh, honestly, for I, I just don't remember a lot of stuff about it. And and I didn't live in New York at the time. I I've worked out of my house in Oregon since 2002. So, you know, I didn't even hear any hallway scuttlebutt at 30 Rock about it because I, I wasn't back there. I know you mentioned the uh, the story with Chris and uh, what you guys uh, went through. Uh, but is there any other story that sticks out to you the most that you have covered during your time with Dateline? Well, I think most of the ones are the big, you know, the big tragedies or the big, uh, you know, 9-11. I know I didn't go home for a week and we all slept on our on the couch in our office or whatever. Um, I, I've um, I'm going to the Olympics in a couple of months in Tokyo. I've, I've, I was in Pyeongchang in 2018. I was in Athens in 2004. I just kind of try to carve out a little niche where I can go do some fun sports things. Um now and then. And, and I like that, uh, you know, other, otherwise, I mean, all the stories are memorable in some way, <laughs> um, back in, back when we used to do things before murder, uh, my favorite story was I did a, a double amputee. He, he crashed a guy who crashed a plane on Mount McKinley in Alaska as a, as a Bush pilot froze, lost his legs, uh, below the knees. And then 20 years later, went back to climb it. And that was pretty cool because oh, wow. we went up, up on Mount McKinley and went to base camp with him and got stuck in storms and things like that. You know, um, those things, it was just a great human uh, triumph story. Uh, he didn't make it the first year. We went back with him the second year he made it. And then he, he tried to, he was training for Everest and he got killed on, on Mount Rainier by a boulder. Um, but, you know, he, he, he probably died happy. Uh, Cause that was his happy place in the mountains. So that's, that's one that stands out for me. Uh, before we let you go, I don't know if you can uh, say a whole lot about, you know, what's about to come. Uh, are you allowed to, I know you mentioned you have a few projects you're working on now and they're all in different phases. Can you talk about any of the upcoming projects that uh, you have that people can expect to see on day? Well, I've spent, I've spent most of the last year and a half working on one story about a man and woman from Rexburg, Idaho, whose kids disappeared uh, and then we chased them to Kauai and found them there. And uh, uh, I think they're about, they found eventually like nine months later, they found the kids buried in the backyard of the guy. There's two or three other murders they're involved in her ex-husband, his wife, you know, uh, assaults, uh, a lot of weird stuff. I've done four Dateline programs on that seven hours of TV in the last 14 months. And I, I'm sure that's not over yet. Um, it's the Lori and Chad Daybell story. Then, you know, I just have a bunch of, you know, a bunch of murder stuff that they're really great, compelling stories, uh, that deal with larger issues. I think, uh, you know, ma, uh, I have a story about a woman who, uh, stole a bunch of money in Idaho from her nonprofit that she ran, uh, set up shell companies through her four daughters, got them involved with, with money and then, and then killed her husband by pushing him over, pumping him full of Benadryl and <laughs> pushing him off a boat in a lake. That's just unbelievable. Nice. A story about family, you know, that you like, who would do that to their kids? Uh, who would involve their kids in all this stuff? And of course, in, in a situation like this, the family split, right? They're the daughter, the, the kids who think mom's a lunatic and the, the, kids who will stick through with mom through anything. So it's all just fascinating to me, the human, <laughs> how people react to trauma and, and when things go wrong, you know, how they, how they can convince themselves of, of whatever their position, whatever they want their position to be. That is interesting. You, you've got a really interesting position. Like I've never 
thought of it from this perspective, like psychologically, uh, I mean, yeah, sure, there are a lot of people who do some things and you question their motives. But from that standpoint, I've never really thought of that uh, a whole lot until talking to you. So that is a de definitely a very interesting perspective. Do you, how often do you guys do case studies or talk to psychologists to try to maybe get their side of things as to why these or do you guys ever do that kind of thing? Not really. I mean, okay. I have a good therapist because I got to defrag all this stuff, you know, like yeah. dump it off. But, uh, you know, I, you know, with Dateline, I think we leave a lot of it up to the viewer. Like our viewers are very savvy, right? Half of them think yeah. they're detectives anyway, right? Because they've watched. Yeah, exactly. But um, I, I think we lay it out for them in a way that um, that allows them to use their own brains and draw conclusions about why people do things and, you know, who they are. Um, I've often said that my, my idea of a perfect Dateline story is you watch it, you turn it off and you turn to your wife and go, wow, I can't believe that they think that guy did it. And she goes, are you kidding me? Of course he did it. You know, and then you talk about it. And I, I just, I think we leave it up to the viewers a lot. We're not, you know, we're not, going to tell you how to think or what to think, because I think, frankly, that's kind of an insult to most people. Fair enough. Well, hey, Shane, uh, thank you so much for uh, making time to, to come on here. A uh, lot of interesting stuff for sure. Uh, before you go, I know you're on social media. Uh, how can people connect with you if they want to follow you and, uh, and all of the work that you do? Well, I'm at Shane Bishop on Twitter. Uh, that's usually, that's the best place to connect with me. I'm on Instagram, but I don't spend a lot of time anywhere but Twitter because because most most of our Dateline fans are on Twitter and I'm on Facebook, but I use that mostly for my family. And and uh, I'm pretty excited. I just talked to my son today. I think we're going to go to the Raiders game November 14th. I think we're going to oh. going to go see that. Um, nice. It's either that or, or SoFi in L.A., but I think we're going to I think we're going to go see the Raiders first. Yeah, those two stadiums, uh, they're on my bucket list for sure. Uh, did you know the Raiders are going to have like some sort of nightclub behind one of the end zones? <laughs> I saw that. I saw. And, you know, I, I really need to get to Kansas City. I've only been to one game at Arrowhead and it was like going to church. I just stood there and, you know, in <laughs> awe. But I, and I, my son's 21 and he's exactly I mean, he's the same measure of Chiefs fan as I am. And, and you know, he's been talking like that. We really need to go to Arrowhead. So uh hopefully we'll do that maybe not this year but we 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 went to the last game uh in oakland when the chiefs played in oakland okay. um, we went to the last game in san diego when the chiefs played in san diego so we we've been repping on the west coast and uh, nice. we made it out of, we made it out of oakland three or four times alive <laughs> that's quite an accomplishment so. I, I think that, i think that itself could be a dateline nbc story yeah so just just yeah. getting out of oakland alive we were we were very smart about it we wore black until we got in the stadium we put our jerseys oh, okay. on and then we you know we're not stupid <laughs> there you go uh hey Shane, like i said great stuff thank you so much we'll have to do this again sometime on the road uh until then we'll definitely be uh following you and everyone else over at Dateline. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Fars. Great to see you. All right. Appreciate Take it, Shane. Take care. All right. There you have it. That is my conversation with Shane Bishop. Really nice guy. Uh, you know, like I was saying uh, at the beginning of um, the segment with him, you know, uh, tw Twitter can be accessible, but you, you you do come across some good people on there. Um, I, I think some people know uh, DJ and I, uh, we met each other on Twitter and he's, Someone who I consider a very good friend. I mean, we text, we keep in touch a couple times a week. So uh, there are some good people that 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 uh, 
you come across on Twitter, believe it or not. Um, I do apologize. I know a lot of people listening wanted to hear a lot about Dateline NBC, and I I know uh, he couldn't answer uh, the last question I had asked him, and, and that was because, you know, he, he didn't have direct involvement with that, so... Uh, if you were listening, hoping for a lot of chatter about that, and you were, you were disappointed by that, I do apologize. Uh, like I, I, I don't. Here's my thing: people will ask me for my opinion sometimes on on Facebook or Twitter about something, and I'll I'll never respond to something that I know nothing about. So certainly understand from his perspective, you know, especially working at Dateline, if if he can't answer a certain question, you know, he shouldn't. So uh, again. Uh, I hope you guys weren't too disappointed by that, but um, uh, yeah, I'll tell you what, man. Uh, that um, that was that. That's how I discovered Dateline uh, was because of To Catch a Predator. I still remember my parents showing me that. That's how I discovered it ultimately, and um, that's one of those things, man. Uh, it's it, it, like I, I watch Hanson versus Predator. I know he moved on and he's done this. Um, for another network, I think it's on Fox. I, I, I'm not 100% sure. Don't quote me on that. But he came across somebody who brought pizza, you know, and obviously he had other plans to go along that night and until Chris Hansen showed up, of course. And the guy's just sitting there going, you know, what's wrong with this? As long as his mom think, or, or her mom thinks it's okay, I don't see an issue. It's like, Man, there are some weird sickos in this world. I mean, that's that's the only thing you can really think of when you hear comments like that. So uh, that show, man, and you would think a show like that would make people not want to do this because they know it's wrong. But when NBC Dateline stopped doing To Catch a Predator and when Chris Hansen started doing this a few years ago, uh, re- basically rebooting, you know, the whole Predator series uh, on his own uh, with a different network. There are still people on there in the chat logs who go, "Hey, there was a TV show about this. You're not one of those people." Like these people know it's it's wrong, and that there was a a, a whole series about this. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's um, it's very interesting that uh, people seem to think that's okay to do. Uh, I mean, it's just disgusting, but no other words to describe that. Anyway, uh, that'll do it for this episode of Farce Cast. I'll be back on Sunday night if you guys want to catch. I know I don't uh, give a heads up often as to when I will go live, but Sunday evening, not exactly sure what time. Zach and DJ are going to join me. I- I'm sure we'll talk all sorts of things. We'll talk Chiefs football, of course. Uh, I mean, we'll-, we'll never turn down that uh, discussion with those two guys. Uh all sorts of things in between. I'll share a little bit about my trip. I know some people have asked me, you know, what is it like traveling during a pandemic? Because a lot of people have not seen an airport or an airplane uh, in, what, 16, 17, 18 months. So uh, I'll touch a little bit on that. It's not as crazy as some might think, uh, but things are returning back to normal, uh, especially with this pandemic. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that uh, next episode. Uh, oh, and a whole lot more with those guys. So... I will talk to you guys on Sunday night. Appreciate you guys joining me once again. I will talk to you guys later. Take care.